0: the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, please open our minds and our hearts to your call to conversion. Please help us to correspond to the graces that you give us that we might respond with courage and with love. We ask this particularly through the intercession of our Blessed Mother and Saint Joseph and all, all the holy angels. Amen. 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 St. Augustine. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Luciano Salvatore. Um, It's it's an honor, uh, as always, to to be here with you. Uh, I'm I'm always excited to. have the opportunity to, to reflect a little bit upon Saint Augustine He's, he's one of those very uh, daunting figures and it's always important for me as a teacher when I'm, when I'm dealing with with things as deep and profound and complex as trying to understand a thinker like Saint. Augustine it's always nice when the thinker in question is a saint For it we, we can kind of go back to the basics and realize you know, at the ends of the day, the teachings of this person and the life of this person are really quite simple. He does have many deep and profound writings that are going to be in many ways beyond us. But at the same time, the heart of his message is very simple. And isn't it always that way with... With those who are most wise, I think it's, it's 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 those of us, and I and I speak from personal my own personal experience, who are more trying to appear wise, <coughs> that, that multiply points, right? You feel like you have to have many many different arguments and many things to say that are going to sound important, but it's the wise who bring it down to very simple things, such as St. Therese, the little flower, who just says, it really does all come back to love. And of course, she was right. She knew that. She had experienced that. And she was actually in a position (coughs) to teach such a thing. Well, St. Augustine is like St. Therese on that score. And he's very much in a position to be a teacher for us as regards a few very simple things. And so I'm going to try, in the spirit of uh, of the wise, such as St. Augustine, to keep things um, rather simple today. Um, I'd like to open, uh, if you'd be so kind as to look on your handout, um, one of the most famous quotations from Saint Augustine, the very last page, page five. Anyone else need one? And so, just, just to quickly familiarize yourself with the handout. Page, page one is a few a, a few points and several of which we'll, we'll, most of which we'll uh, go through quickly together in my presentation. Uh, page two, a principal dates in the life of St. Augustine, uh, for your interest and in reference, which I'll make a very brief reference to. And then you have three pages of quotations, most of which we won't look at together. Um, all of which I think that you'll you'll find interesting and if nothing else, if it inspires you to pick up the confessions and read more in it, I'll be very excited. But at a few points today, I'm going to refer to some quotations. And the Roman numeral that comes first is the book number, and the confessions are 10 books. And then the number after the period is the chapter number. And those are universal, regardless of what translation you were to look at of St. Augustine's Confessions. One of the most famous, again, is Book 10, Chapter 27, on your fifth page. It's normally translated, it's a slightly different translation here. Too late did I love you. It's often just translated. Late have I loved you. O fairness so ancient and yet so new. Too late did I love you book 10, chapter 27, and as I, was, as I was reading that, what struck me is, you know, at least St. Augustine can turn, in the, in the Confessions are addressed to our Lord, it's a very <coughs> fascinating literary style, and it's one of the most read books in history, in Christianity, after the Bible, it's in the top two or three most read books in our tradition. I thought, isn't it amazing, an amazing grace that St. Augustine can say, speaking to God, late, have I loved you, where it struck me, you know, I'm not sure I can really say yet that I have. And at least for St. Augustine there came the point where he could, uh, with with that admixture of sorrow, thinking for all the time in his life that he had wasted, that he turned with sorrow but with amazing gratitude, late have I loved you, O fairness so ancient and yet so new, too late did I love you. The question I pose to myself in a sense that I want to pose to you today is have we yet come to the position where we can say that to God? Have we really yet begun to love Him? And I'd like to present for your consideration this is what conversion is all about. And perhaps this lens might be the lens wherein we will finally correspond to the grace of God and really begin to live by really beginning to love, as Saint Augustine finally, at one point in the middle of his life, began to do. So here's my my plan. I'd, I'd, I'd like to present what I going to call a meditation on conversion by looking to St. Augustine's example. And so the first thing I'd like to do is present, present a few noble features for con- of St. Augustine's conversion. And I hope in looking at them, we'll learn some things that will be helpful for our conversion. Then I'm going to take... What I take to be the central teaching of the Confessions, that will be the central teaching to help us judge how we are doing in being converted, and then end with a few practical suggestions that I hope will fit well with Lent. And so if you would look at the first page of your handout, What I'm going to do, the the suggestions I'm going to end with are the things at the bottom of the page, the possible lens and practices. The notable features of St. Augustine's conversion are the ones in Roman number one at the top of the page. So I'm going to jump right in by noting the first ongoing series of conversions, more and more fully turning with intellect and will mind, and affection toward the Lord. One of the things that I think makes St. Augustine be such a great icon of conversion for us is precisely the fact that it was not one of these, boom, all of a sudden, everything turns around. Like At, at the end of the day, that's not really of what normally happens and it's not the way that we should think in terms of conversion. The, the deeper, the richer understanding of conversion is precisely a lifelong cultivation and something that takes perseverance that we must continually work at. And if you if you were to peek at the next page of the principal dates in Augustine's life I want, I want you to note that In 373, when he was around 18 years of age, he read this work by the great Roman philosopher Cicero. And what he says of that time, he says the following. Suddenly, upon reading it, all the vanity I had hoped in I saw as worthless. And with an incredible intensity of desire, I longed after immortal wisdom. So at 18, there was this important moment where he realized, oh, my goodness, there's much more important things to be concerned about. But the reality is then, look how much later he was actually baptized. He was baptized in Easter of 387, 14 years later. The Confessions is mostly about those intervening years. For a good decade or so, he was dabbling in a heretical sect called the Manichaeans. Finally, he became a catechumen and became very serious about pursuing the faith. It would still be another two years before he was baptized, during which time he had a mistress. We're talking about someone who took a long time to really convert. And so in that sense, he's an excellent icon of our conversion, of realizing we must keep striving. We have to keep praying. We have to stay at it. I think one way of capturing it is think in terms of perseverance captures the prize. Christianity is always about persevering. The second noble feature of St. Augustine's conversion is the role of prayer. Now, the interesting thing is it was particularly the prayer of his mother, at least at first. But in any case, it was prayer. At one point, uh, St. Augustine says of his mother, in fact, When she had passed away, I wept for my mother, now dead and departed from my sight, who had wept so many years for me that I should live ever in your sight. He looked back upon her life for so many years of praying for him, and he realized that was the basis of this amazing grace of his being able to turn and come to life. There's a great story that St. Augustine tells in Book 3, Chapter 12, where he's telling the story of his mother, who was going to a bishop and was continually hounding the bishop and just saying, I've been praying so much. I am so brokenhearted about my son. What can I do? All I live for is that he might have the faith, that he might have the gift that I have. This is my son. What else might I want? And she would keep going back to the bishop and going back to the bishop. And finally, St. Augusta reports that the bishop said to her these amazing words. Go your way, as sure as you live. It is impossible that the son of these tears should perish. prayer, true persevering prayer always works if conversion doesn't happen one thing we know for sure there wasn't enough prayer where there's true prayer there's always true conversion third noble feature specific sins presented a significant obstacle in the case of Augustine and again perhaps a, 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 great, a great icon for many in our troubled culture um, his particular area uh, they he had to work on was chastity at one point he says In fact, it was not really marriage that I wanted. I was simply a slave to lust. And this wasn't early on. This was later on in his process of conversion. Practical insight. We all have specific areas that are special obstacles to our conversion. I think the, the thing that's so encouraging about St. Augustine is to see, okay, clearly these things can be overcome. Clearly one can have these kinds of problems and still end up being a saint. But the nice thing is St. Augustine takes them very seriously. I mean, as, as he looks back, he's very clear. This kept me from God. So, it's, so it's, it's a great balance of very much a trust in the mercy of God and a realizing we are sinful and we need his help. But at the same time, being very hard on us, sins do keep us from God. We must treat them as such and go after them with all our strength, with all our power. Again, perhaps a particularly good theme for Lent where the spiritual masters tell us, we should ask ourselves, what are those areas that most of all keep us from conversion? If Lent's about conversion, one of our main practices should be, what are those areas of how we live that are keeping us from turning? And for St. Augustine, he knew what it was, and he worked on it. (coughs) the final um, noble feature of Augustine's conversion is as they say in the handout his central challenge integrating other loves under one central love the love of God I'm going to come back to that as kind of our main problem. So I'm going to set that aside for just a moment and move on and say, okay, what would I like to focus on in his long conversion? I'd like to turn to some things that he says in the later stages of his conversion that I think are most instructive for us I think that we will find that we can relate to them. One one of my absolute favorites is his referring to the pearl of great price. If you peek at in your quotations, book eight—that means Roman numeral eight, chapter one. There's actually two quotations there from eight one. So it's the lower one, so it's two-thirds of the way, three-quarters of the way down to page four. I had now found the pearl of great price, and I ought to have sold all I had and bought it, but I hesitated still. Isn't that a great line? Are there any of us in the room that have really have any doubts in our minds about what the pearl of great price is? But are there any of us that have really bought it? The great thing about St. Augustine is if this appropriately rankled with him. He was was shockingly honest and self-reflective. He was able to look at the situation and say, I knew what the Pearl of Great Price was. I even knew it was worthy of selling everything. And I didn't do it. Why not? Isn't that where many of us are? He also uses other great images. I had begun to taste God, but I kept falling back. I shrank from walking away so narrow. He says, I knew that Christ was the way to life, but I shrank from walking down away. That he could see was a very narrow and difficult way to walk. He talks about in his great self-reflection, "I wanted to be holy. I I willed it, but I didn't really will it." And isn't isn't that brilliant? I willed it, but I didn't really will it. It just says, if I really willed it, I would have done it, but I didn't. Doesn't this all sound very familiar? Mm-hmm. Isn't this where the rubber ultimately meets the road for us? <coughs> We're kind of converting but we're not. And for you and me, it's not a matter of well, we need to discover, I mean, like like Scott Kahn did. We need to discover well. Okay, you know, the, the, really, the Pope does have authority in the Church. Or we need to discover here, the Catholic Church is the one true Church, so I can convert and become a Catholic. That's not what's going on for us. Conversion is a matter of changing our heart, of turning our face, and turning our life dare I simply say, of turning all our love towards Him and then living it. Are we going to do it or are we not? This is the challenge that St. Augustine presents (coughs) us with. I suggest for our consideration, it's actually helpful to realize that we are lukewarm. Here's a reading from Revelation Book 3, chapter 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich. <coughs> These are pretty serious words, aren't they? Our Lord was quite clear. He's not interested in the lukewarm. There's something that he finds particularly disappointing, shall we say, about, may I be bold, us, the ones who, as it were, should have known better. were kind of trying. So like St. Augustine, we need to see clearly, may I suggest, where we stand. We're still falling back from total commitment. We're still not totally willing. We're still not really selling all and buying the pearl of great price. We might conclude we're not truly converted. Well, the good news is this is what Lent's about. Lent's a time precisely for us to try to do it, to try to truly, at long last, fall in love. And really live that love. So, what will this true conversion look like? I'd like to give you a couple of key texts from St. Augustine who will be pointing to what true love will look like. What will it look like when we truly have turned? Not a great one image, we turn our face towards what we love. Conversion, literally in Latin, is just, is just a turning towards. When we turn our face towards our Lord, and as it were finally, in doing so, love, what will our love look like? How can we set our sights on this renewed love, this deeper love, this truer love? because can I, can I share a frustration of mine? I find myself thinking, okay, I'm supposed to love more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now what? <laughs> what exactly does this look like? And now what am I supposed to, to do? <laughs> well, the nice thing is St. Augustine actually does, does help us a little bit. The thing we're going to look at here briefly in him is, is going to make it all crystal clear. But I give you two key texts. And it's not referring directly to loving God. Well it is, but in a sense the focus is going to be on how that shows up in our loving of other things. And in a sense, that makes it easier for us to work on it. You look at 1029, so again it's on page 5. It's almost at the very end. The fourth to last text quotation. This is a this is a real Lulu. interesting side note in saint thomas aquinas when he in his treatise on love where he's talking about what the perfection of love looks like he quotes this line from the confessions remember saint augustine talking to god for he loves you too little who loves anything with you which he loves not you isn't that an amazing line I'm going to stop right there he loves you God too little who loves anything with you which he loves not for you the other one that I want to draw your attention to, we'll come back to that one in just a minute, is 4 9. So it's on the first page of the quotation, which is page 3, it's right in the middle of the uh, page of quotations. <laughs> Blessed is the man. That loves thee, O God, and his friend in thee, and his enemy for thee. For he alone loses no one that is dear to him, if all are dear in God, who is never lost. Blessed is that man that loves thee, O God, and his friend in thee and his enemy for thee. St. Augustine is using a lot of prepositions here to try to help us understand how the love of God is going to show up in the other things that we love. Clearly he's saying we must love God first. But he's saying much more than this. We need to love God more is saying much more than this. It's much more than just, we need to love God more and other things less than God. This is a true (laughs) statement, but it's not the main point. We need to love all else in God and for God. seems to me, in St. Augustine's words, those are the two key prepositions. When we come to the point where we love God first, and then absolutely anything other than God that we love, and there are many things worthy of our love other than God, other than including ourselves, that we love all of these things in God and for God. What exactly that means, I'm not going to be able to tell you here tonight. But here's the good news. St. Augustine and the other great spiritual masters say it again and again and again. And so we, who would be disciples, need to take those words and, if nothing else, try our best... Bend our energy to try to figure out what they mean. For in them is the key to really loving. Therein is the key to loving as we are. And we must pray. We must examine to try to find out what it means. I have a couple of suggestions as to how we can try to understand it. But I want to begin in honesty by saying to you, The more I think about these things, the more I read these men, I realize the main reason I'm not good at explaining what they're talking about is because I haven't really done it yet. And the only people who can most of all understand it and thus really have the wisdom to explain it is those who have done it. And I wouldn't be honest if I didn't say that to you. How can we still strive to understand what they mean? What questions might we ask ourselves to examine our love? So what I'd like to do right now, this is just the hardest part of what I'm going to do. It's, as it were, the the most philosophical part. I want to spend just a couple minutes to try to get inside these phrases, these key lines... That St. Augustine is saying, that all of Masters repeat, we have to love God first, and anything else that we love, we're loving in Him, we're loving for Him. Or another way they say, we love them because we love God. You see, that's more than just saying we love God first. We would need to get to the point where everything else we love, we love it because we love God. It's one thing to say the word, it's another thing to enter into the reality. May we begin by asking ourselves as regards anything that we love? Why do I love it? This is not an easy exercise, but isn't it an important one? I can look at my life and I can ask myself, why do I love teaching? There's many different reasons I might love teaching. Why do I love gardening? For that matter, why do I love my wife? Why do I love my children? There are good reasons for love, and there are not so good reasons for love. How do I judge whether I'm loving them because I love God? Can I really look at my wife and say, I love you because I love God? One thing I am sure of, when I'm finally able to say that, it's then, and only then, that I'll really be loving her. And the same thing for my children, and the same thing for my students. I will have grown in the love of God so much that it is the reason that I would burn with love for anything else that's important to me. Perhaps we might, we might try to put it this way. <coughs> what do these loves for other things other than God look like when they're really rooted in a love for God? Three things I'll throw at you. one, this love for whatever it is, my spouse, my children, for teaching, for anything at all good, persons or things that I enjoy doing, whatever it is, this love will always lead me to and never distract me or take me away from Christ. If my love for those things truly is rooted in and from my love for God, my love for them will always be drawing me towards Christ and never taking me away from Him. If I find there's something I love that in any way is taking me away from Christ, I can know for sure I'm not loving it because I love God. And thus, I am not loving God enough for St. Augustine says, if you love anything else, not because you love God, you are not loving God enough. Yeah. Aren't you kind of speaking to a distinction and difference between sexual love or emotional love and agape love? Agape love is kind of the selfless love, the both just wrote an encyclical about it not too long ago. And you know, that's kind of the basis point of the way we should be approaching God, I think, when we speak of God. So if it's selfless, if it has a principle to it, if it's based on reason, rationality, and the fact that everything on earth is created by God, so we have to love our enemies just as much as we love our friends, because we're all a creation of it, whether or not we're in the right mind or not. Aren't you speaking generally to agape love when you speak of love? What is the question? I'm going to try to answer the question in such a way that it will hopefully be clear what the question was. Um, I am agape is the Greek name for a love ultimately of that to which you are is greater than you, to which you give yourself, which you love more than yourself, which you submit unto. And I would say I am speaking to that, but I and I put it to you this way: that should be the root of all our loves. So that that I'd say would be the point. There are these other loves. <coughs> but ultimately, the perfection of love is to have any other love, whether it's the love of friendship, whether it's the love of eros, be growing out of that love and then they all can be themselves and be most true. So that's a that's a very good question. My second so my, my my second point then of how we will recognize something about this love. The first was that it will always lead me to and never distract me from Christ. The other is my love for whatever it is will always tend to build up God's kingdom on earth. Always pray thy kingdom come. My loves, whatever they are, for whatever it is other than God, would be tending to build up his kingdom. Why? It will put him first. It will put his will first. It will put his people first. And thus, whatever this love is... It will be building up, as it were, the church, his kingdom. The third characteristic, and again, kind of a way to to test ourselves, if I'm deprived of this object of love. In God's providence, if it becomes clear that this object is something that is to be taken away from me. I am willing to gratefully accept that. Of course, I'm thinking especially of such things as a death of a loved one. We can look back, we can judge ourselves in our loves by, as it were, am I willing to accept gratefully from God whatever He disposes? whether it be you know, the home I have, whether it be the teaching job I have, whether it be even my loved ones. If we get to the perfection of love, we love God that much that we love these in Him, we are truly willing to accept from God whatever He disposes. Imagine the peace that comes along with that. <coughs> Again, to begin to heed this call of what it looks like to love God enough, to love him as St. Augustine says, so that we love everything else in him, for him, and because of him, is going to take a lot of energy on our part, even simply to understand what it is. But this is Christianity, this is holiness, this is life. Our life, we might find burdensome. Our life, we might find frustrating. I present your consideration, to the extent that we do, it's always because our love is anemic. To the extent that we are frustrated, to the extent that we are burdened, to the extent that we are unhappy, St. Augustine would have us see it is simply to the extent that we have not turned our face to him and do not love him enough and other things in him. Now right here I think is, is, is really the key and perhaps the most difficult thing for us to understand and to respond to We are responsible for our love. I think one of the classic misunderstandings of our culture is to see love as more something that happens to us. We more associate love with a feeling. And so we have the tendency to make a judgment, well, either our love is there or it is not. And this is not something that is so much in our control. I present for your consideration that this is the nub. This is the nub of the whole situation. Are we going to step up and realize love is in our power to be able to give? I present for your consideration that the problem in how we understand love is particularly evident in the approach to marriage today. And didn't God always use spousal love as the great image for His love for us? It is not the dominant view. Love happens. And then, hey, sometimes love grows cold. What are you gonna do? How many spouses have found themselves in a situation where their attitude has been, oh well, I'm just not really feeling the love anymore. Can I be blamed for this? And the next thing you know, life's going in another direction. Is this not a fundamental (coughs) abandonment of the very root of life? Love, in the critical sense, is in our control. And to stay with the spousal image, it is our place, our obligation, to cultivate that love and not simply expect that it happens. Isn't it exactly the same then in our relationship with God? How many of us Christians are doing to God, dare I say exactly what we're doing to our spouses, we're saying, hey, I'm just not really feeling this. And so we don't do it. We don't cultivate love and make it happen. But God, going way back, had shown us something about love when he commanded it. If love were simply something that happens that's out of our control, Then he could not have had it all hinge upon the one great commandment. Where he said to his people, The one thing that you will write on your doorposts, that you will hang around your neck, that you will live and breathe and teach your children and think about all day long is my commandment to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And you shall love him with your whole heart and your whole soul and your whole mind and your whole strength. The whole relationship of God to his people is built upon. He commands us to love and he, of course, then empowers it. But we have to step up and do it. We have it in our power. To love him first and love him more than all else if we want to. Because if we want to, we'll turn to him and he'll give it to us. In conclusion, then, let's look quickly at what I just put down as a few possible Lenten practices in the spirit of this notion of conversion that we've gotten here from St. Augustine. One, turning to Jesus in the Eucharist and in his word. The Eucharist, of course, is him in his very person, in his word is in how he expresses himself to us, particularly meaning their sacred scripture. The remedy for our lack of love in his company and presence, we fall in love. I think that this is the main thing that we can learn from St. Augustine. What do we do? If we ask St. Augustine this question, okay, we want to grow in love, we're willing to take responsibility for it, and we're willing to step up to the plate and make it happen, so what should we do? I think he's going to say, place yourself in his presence. Go to him that you might fall in love with him. Sense it sounds a little bit like a good, a good retreat for spouses, too. certain quality of how time is spent together to cultivate again, as it were, a falling in love. To cultivate it. Same principles always at work. With God, we need to place ourselves in His presence. The nice thing is, this always works because here we have what is simply, ultimately, love itself. We place ourselves in His presence and we will fall in love with him. We go to him in the Eucharist, which he has given us as his way of sharing his love with us. We go to him in his word, what he has given us to share his love with us. Second, prayer with this specific intention, that God reform, that he redirects our desires, desires meaning loves, that he deepen our love for him, charity, and make it the source of all our affections. Just peek really quickly at um, 611 and 84. 611 is on page 4. Third of the way down. I thought that continency was a matter, by that I means chastity, was a matter of our own strength. And I knew that I had not the strength. For in my utter foolishness, I did not know the word of your scripture, that none could be confident unless you give it. And truly, you would have given it if with groaning of spirit I had assailed your ears, and with settled faith had cast my care upon you. He's given that sense of, if we want to change our desires and our loves, ask him to change them. And that's what's in our power, to ask him to change it. Eight, four, just a little bit down Uh, further on page 4 is actually an example of his prayer where he's asking God to change his love praise Lord and act stir us up, call us back inflame us, draw us to you, stir us up grow sweet unto us let us now love you let us run after you could God possibly resist a prayer that asked him you fall in love with him. <coughs> Finally, bodily, mod- bodily mortification. It wouldn't be Lenten's suggestions if we didn't have this. St. Augustine made that a very important part of his project, both as, rep- as reparation and as part of our efforts to reform or redirect our desires. I just throw this in here because I just wanted to throw this at you. The thing that I take from St. Augustine is bodily mortification is all about love. The only reason that the church calls us in Lent to fast and to do penance is somehow the church in her wisdom knows that our willingness to do that is just an essential part of our purifying our loves, of our setting certain other things aside so as to be able to turn. So I find it very encouraging to think in terms of, it's all about love. The only reason I'm suffering this pain right now that I'm willing to discipline my body is that by disciplining my body, I'll somehow be unencumbering my spirit that I might be able to turn and turn all more effectively. At the end of the day, then, perhaps we might think in terms of the pearl of great price. The true pearl of great price requires much. Not only do we have to sell all, we're going to have to take all of our loves and, as it were, give them all to him. May I just throw a word to the other couples out? Matthew 18, 19 says the following. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I like to thank that one of the main things our Lord had in his mind when he said, If two of you on earth agree about anything that they ask for, my Father in heaven will grant it, is he was thinking of spouses. If spouses together pray that their hearts might be turned, that together they might be converted not only to one another in renewed love, but to Him. To put his love first, could God possibly reject such a prayer and not do it for them and do it for all that are close to them? Perhaps we can all pray together that we, like St. Augustine, someday <coughs> will be able to say, late, indeed late, but finally, finally, finally. I have loved him. Thank you very much. some of you have some questions i also know that we're a little bit past our time which is my fault so why don't we do this 60 seconds you can stand up if you need to leave go ahead and go out the door if you want to stay for a few and so you know i only go a couple questions so we don't stay too late um you can stay around so if you need to leave go ahead stand up and exit right He said, uh, "It's rich, you know, a rich man going with iron. He done the whole thing, right, and right. Saint Peter was a gas." He said, "Then who can have salvation? How can right. you be saved, then, Lord?" And Jesus said, "With man, it's impossible. Right, right. With God, it isn't." That's what yeah. I was reminded yeah. of. I I think, I, think that's a, I think that's an outstanding point, and you know, I, I think it's very perceptive in your um, realizing that the problem with the rich man was not that he had wealth. But the problem is that he did not love his wealth in God. Had he loved his wealth in God, he would have been willing immediately, even if with some pain, would have been willing immediately to to see in our Lord's call there, okay, well, hey, now, all right, Lord, you had given, now, now you're calling me to give back. That's it. And the radicalness of that call of love, he's so right. I mean, it strikes Saint Peter saying, "Lord, please. I mean, you, you can't. You can't be serious." But he is serious. Our Lord he does not back off. It is, it, it, and it's you know, the riches. Riches are such a are such a funny thing. It's you know, I think it's very easy for us to to at times. I, I shouldn't say us. I should say me. You know? um, I don't want to implicate anybody else. To, to think in terms of well you know hey I mean, it's very clear in Christianity there's nothing you know, intrinsically wrong with riches it's very easy to get, to get quite comfortable thinking about in that term which is true but at the same time it's very clear from our Lord from all the fathers of the church that there is a unique temptation in riches a unique temptation to love them not in God and for have them, to have them distract you, to distract you from really converting and turning. And it's, and it's those that are wealthy, in a sense, in many ways, that includes all the people probably in the room, um, in comparison to, of course, so many in the world, that we really have a specific challenge there, if we're really going to be serious and realize what St. Peter saw was so radical, what our Lord was saying. I think that's an outstanding point. But was the, was the rich man not saved? Was he not saved? Um, That's a good question. I don't don't think that we we know for sure whether the rich man is saved. I think it depends on what he did after that. Um, um, That would be the type of thing that the followers of the church might might comment upon. Another similar one to that is, um, what about the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son? Um, the, these men who it, it didn't seem to have done anything terribly wrong, but their heart clearly wasn't where it was supposed to be. And the good thing is, at the end of the day, um, I think it's, it's always good to, to go with the mercy side. Well, hope, hopefully, you know, hopefully God saves, you know, saves them. But I think for our deliberation, it's very clear for, they're not where we want to be in any case. Fair, so thank you very much. Sabatina? Um you focused on the love of God as our ultimate goal, and I know one of your favorite topics is the importance of friendship in our lives. And I was just wondering if you might tie those two things together, and you know, how do the two things relate—friendship and the love of God? Um, well, thanks, thanks, thanks for asking that. I, did, I, I just throw this out, you know, it's something that could have been emphasized here. And, I mean, St. Augustine is big on the uh, on, on the friendship theme himself, and friends as sharing their life together, friends as sharing their hearts together, as sharing their minds together, and at that as a great archetype, as itself a great icon of our relationship with God, as Friends, Of course, we have, to have a, we have to have a deeper notion of friend, not to kind of slap on the back kind of friend, but friends who, as it were, truly love one another. One of the neat things about friendship is when we love a friend, we love what the friend loves, even precisely because the friend loves it. And that's a nice way, I think, of, of bringing out also, if we truly love God even with a full and rich sense of friendship, we will love what he loves precisely because he loves it. What better reason is there to love anything than to love it because God loves it? That's one, that's one nice aspect of thinking in terms of friendship. But another one is, is perhaps to go back to some of the things we were thinking about for Lenten practices of how do you cultivate friendship with someone, just talking directly about a relationship with God and thinking in terms of the interior life, one of, one of St. Famous, oh, famous favorite things to, to say about the interior life is to, interior life is cultivating conversation with God. And if, friends, if friendship always grows in conversation, our interior life is precisely a conversation with God. We are cultivating our friendship with Him. And the good news about God, the more you get to know Him, the more you will love Him. So, so that would be that would be what I would throw out. Thanks, thanks for, thanks for asking. Is there anything else? Well, it's been an honor. Thank you again all for uh, coming and for staying. i all take a little bit